Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello and welcome. Happy Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving. It's one of our big public holidays. We run turkey trot races in the morning and gorge ourselves on mid-afternoon food piles. And then we all slip into a deep, sleepy coma for a couple hours. It's one of our, our American traditions. So today, I'm speaking with our old friend Ashley Cumlin about her new venture and adventure that is coming into its second year this summer, the MS Run the U.S. Relay Across America. She is assembling a team of motivated, like-minded runners to each run a chunk of a relay across the United States. And it's interesting to me because Ashley has been a fixture of the Run Run Live podcast since we started. I spoke to her on several occasions before, during, and after her solo run across the U.S. a few years back. And I know it sounds patriarchal, but it's like we've watched her grow up. Now she's running this real, structured, official charity, and it all started with that first step out the door, with deciding she was going to do something positive about the illness that was slowly taking her mom from her, and she didn't just say, hey, I'm just a 20-year-old girl from Wisconsin. How could I ever make a difference? She put on those shoes, and she got out the door, and she made a difference. And she's currently looking for people to share her next adventure, and we'll talk about that today. I'll also read a piece on personality types that I distilled from a book that the Zen Runner gave me when I stayed with him down in Florida a couple of weeks ago. That'll be in Section 1. In Section 2, I'll talk through why it is important to warm up for races and workouts and what exactly warm-up means. And I'm not going to write a race report on Fort Myers. I don't have the time. (laughs) It just wasn't that eventful. I thought I'd have a shot at running a qualifying time there because the course is super flat, but I just had a really bad day. I went out at race pace, but I didn't feel great from the start. And I had my heart rate monitor on, and I was trying to relax, but my heart rate was very high for the effort and pace that I was running at. And if I'm racing at marathon pace, my heart rate should be, it should settle down after 10 or 20 minutes. It will start out high in like zone five, zone six, but then Once it normalizes, it should settle down into zone 3, 4, preferably low to mid zone 3 for those first, well, 18 miles or so. And mine was just stuck up in zone 5 and zone 6, and it wouldn't come down. We had a headwind heading out, and that was a bit of a challenge, but I found someone to draft. It was in the 70s, and it was humid, which is not ideal for me, but that shouldn't really matter till later in the race. And I was struggling from the start. After, I don't know, 10 miles or so, I started throwing in some slower paces. 
and even some walk breaks to try to bring to find a reasonable heart rate, but I couldn't. And I'd walk until it came down into zone two, and then I'd start jogging, and it would shoot right back up into zone five. And I almost wish I hadn't worn the heart rate monitor, <laughs> because at this point I was concerned that I might be having some sort of virus or something, and if I kept racing, I'd keel over from a stroke or something. So after that, I just walked until it came down, and then jogged until it got too high, and then walked again all the way to the finish line for my slowest marathon of my 12 and 12 so far. I'm not disappointed in having run so slowly, but I was a bit befuddled as to what the hell was going on with my body. Coach said something about a catabolic state induced by overtraining. I'm just going to put it behind me. <laughs> Spend some time building my base with some longer zone two runs. And as the Lydiard guys say, a big bottom solves everything. So this week, Facebook was asking me what I was thankful for. And I'm super happy to be running and to be putting down the miles that I have this year when last year I wasn't running at all. I'm happy to be healthy, have a good job and be able to pursue the things that are important to me and fulfilling for me. My kids are doing well. My family's strong. I'm in a good place, and I hope you are as well. I got an email this morning that the Run Run Live email list up to a new record, 350 subscribers. And I've been getting some great email from newer listeners with interesting stories and positive feedback. And they are an inspiration to me. i love to get them. I started this podcast, this conversation with you back in, what was it, 2008 in the parking lot after completing the Mount Washington road race and training for my first ultra, and we've come a long way together in five years. My original purpose was to share with you some of the things I've learned, perhaps keep you entertained, maybe give you some inspiration as we continue to transform our lives. Well, happy Thanksgiving. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Do, 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 do. Leveraging personality types in your interactions. Change the way you look at the world by changing your approach. And this leads to better interactions and better results. Have you ever been in a situation where the person you're interacting with makes no sense to you. They seem totally irrational and frustrating. You may have been having a clash of personality types. Personality type classification is another of the sort of pseudoscientific methodologies meant to quantify the messiness of human behavior into rational piles. In this way, the intent is that you can determine how your behavior and your style of interacting meshes with people of different styles and behavior patterns. Why do you care? You care because in life and in business, you have to interact with all different types of people. Some of them you will find very frustrating, and you won't know why until you realize their personal style is at odds with yours. So you benefit in two ways. First, you finally understand why they're so hard for you to interact with. And second, you can modify your approach to mesh with theirs and vastly improve the interaction. This way you can have out-of-the-box strategies 
for the different personality types that you encounter, and it will vastly improve not only your experience, but your effectiveness in these interactions. There are many flavors of these personality typing methodologies. One of the first and most famous is the Myers-Briggs personality test, and this was based on Carl Jung's work in the 1920s. Myers and Briggs created a questionnaire that people could take and determine their personality type, and they came up with 16 different possible personality types and talked through how each interacted with each other. A more recent rendition of the personality type methodology is laid out in a great little book that Zen Runner lent me last week from the Wilson Learning Library called The Social Styles Handbook. This is a much simpler and much more practical adaptation of the personality type method. They break it up into two main axes and four possible social styles. I have included a rendition of the graphic in this article on my website. The vertical axis is task-based versus people-based. So the top is task-based, the bottom is people-based. The horizontal axis is ask versus tell. So the left side is ask, the right side is tell. And from this, you can break people up into four social styles based on this quadrant definition. And starting in the upper right-hand quadrant is the driver personality type. The driver is task-based and tell-based. Drivers have an outward-focused, task-driven social style. You will recognize these people. Many executives that I work with are drivers. They are brief and to the point and focused on results. These are the people who stop you five minutes into your presentation and ask you to get to the point. Next over, the upper left quadrant are the analytics social style. These folks are still task-based, but they're more introverted. You'll also recognize this type. These are the ones who will want all the numbers to add up and aren't happy if they're forced to make decisions without all the facts. And many of the technical folks that you interact with are analytics. The lower left-hand quadrant are the emotives. The emotives are ask-based and people-based. Again, these personality types will be really obvious to you as well. They use words like feel and are very concerned with people's feelings and emotions and need to have consensus and don't like conflict. And finally, the lower right-hand quadrant contains the expressives. And expressives are outward-focused tellers, but also people persons. They are the big-picture people. They love to paint a vision. They communicate well, but sometimes have trouble with the details. So the first thing you need to do is figure out what social style or personality type you are, and then you can build strategies for interacting with other different styles. For example, since I am more than likely an expressive, analytical people drive me crazy. And if I'm not careful, I'll drive them crazy because we have no style traits in common. I really don't care about the details because I've got a vision and I, and I see them as a bunch of slow, dim-witted dullards that just want to slow me down. They will, on the other hand, want to verify all the details and will see me as just a careless, flighty, blowhard bullshitter. So since I know all about social styles, when I'm confronted by an, by an analytic, I'll slow down. 
and I'll prepare myself to tell them the same thing three or four times until they're comfortable with it. Or better yet, I'll match them up with someone more analytical on my team. That's the big learning from this exercise. It's first to understand and then to put that understanding to use by changing your approach. By changing your approach, you can get what you want with less aggravation. The same holds true for these methodologies as all the others that try to quantify the messy, non-quantifiable nature of human behavior. There is no pure A or B. There are shades of gray in all this. You may find that your social style is on the line, and you exhibit attributes of different quadrants. So be careful. Use this information to improve the quality of your interactions and to gain insights into the seemingly irrational behaviors of others. But understand that nothing is absolute. And I quite enjoy these personality types and social styles exercises. It's quite worth it for no other reason than it provides a fresh framework for you to approach some of the stickier, more intractable challenges of human behavior in social settings. And now for today's featured interview. So you're a pro now. You're moving up. You're uh, you're big time. Well, you'll be you'll be moving out to Beverly Hills pretty soon. Mm, I'm thinking. No, I'm a Wisconsin girl. Actually, who was I talking to? Oh, I don't even know if it was legit, but like I had this guy approach me in the airport, and he was all like, "Oh, I'm like a you know fitness photographer out in like Hollywood, and you know I could probably get you a lot of." work if you come out there and I'm like God, I'm not moving to Hollywood and he's like but you do great it's like I live in Wisconsin <laughs> yeah, yeah. That. and that's a great pickup line but no <laughs> <laughs> yeah but anyways that was the only other time I was yeah now Hollywood's uh, a cool place to visit but probably would never live there I couldn't you know I'm from I'm from Massachusetts and it's just just a different just a different mindset. I mean, I, I could live anywhere because I'm very adaptable and I love adventures, but I think I'd be like Alice in Wonderland for the first three years. <laughs> three, it'd take me like 15. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you can you can take the girl out of the Midwest, but you can't take the Midwest out of the girl, huh? Not for this girl. Yeah, I love the Midwest. And, you know, having traveled across the country twice now, I do get to see... It's cool. It's pretty cool how you get to see like not only the top, the topography change and the terrain change, but then also the cultures are different and attitudes are different. Yeah, exactly. It's like in the old days, in the Victorian times, they used to take these these like uh, slow boat trips, you know, down rivers and across oceans. You did sort of the same thing on foot across America. Yeah. Yeah, and it's good going from west to east. Well, I don't know. Well, it's good. I like going west to east, but it's funny how, like, in the west, I can literally pull over the RV in almost any area. Like, there's this, there are just huge shoulders, and there's always space, and there's always, I don't know, some place to put the thing. And then it's like, as you get out east, it's like the bridges are smaller, the roads are smaller, you know, there's more cars, more people. That thing just does not fit out east very well. Yeah, yeah, I know. I live here. You know, I talked to a couple other folks. Uh, I'm always talking to people who are running across something, right? So I talked to some other folks who ran across the U.S. I talked to some dude who's running around the world for the Guinness. Mm-hmm. Kind of funny. He's pushing like this contraption. It's almost like a, a coffin on bicycle wheels. <laughs> so it like pops up and he sleeps in it. So he's running 16,000 miles pushing that thing. That's, that's crazy. Does it have headlights? I don't know. 
I, you know, I don't think so, because those would be heavy. Yeah. I think it's pretty rudimentary. <laughs> but I did talk to this one young lady who, uh, like yourself, ran across the U.S. a couple months ago, and she she just decided to go one day, and she bought, like, a baby stroller at Walmart mm-hmm. to carry her stuff and just took off. It was interesting to her, because she kept getting pulled over, and people were wondering about the baby you know, in the stroller. And she's like, I don't have a baby. I'm just running. So I would have probably ended up doing that if Money Mutual didn't hand over some money because I was pretty, pretty poor when I first started, too. So I kind of had that attitude, too, where I was like, all right, well, if we don't do it with the RV, I guess I'm just running by myself with a stroller. Yeah. Yeah. So this summer you convinced a bunch of other people to relay across the U.S. with you. And it was kind of kind of sad, or at least challenging, that you kicked off the same weekend that Boston blew up. I know. Same day. Same day. Which was interesting because as I got the relay started, I was just consumed with that. So there was a lot of interviewing, obviously getting the runner in the right direction, on the right route, um, safely through Santa Monica, headed east, basically. I didn't really pick up my phone and take a look at like Twitter, Facebook, or any sort of messages for hours. So by the time I got to it, I think it was noon on the West Coast, and I started looking at Twitter and realized something happened in Boston. And that pretty much, you know, aside from it being extremely heavy as a runner, to one, know that I had a lot of friends out there, and two, just to imagine what that was like, but then to also know I had, um, I was, um, conflicted emotionally because I felt heavy and sad, but I also didn't want it to reflect on, you know, I had this runner who was starting this monumental journey for herself. So I couldn't, you can't sit there and be sad and upset. Well, you have this individual who's running her very first marathon ever, and I'm going to follow it up by four more. So I had to kind of keep our operation moving while also reflecting on what was happening in Boston. Yeah, and I I bet that on the back end after the smoke cleared, it probably was um, probably big support for your for your cause as well. You know, just um, just people people understanding what we we as endurance athletes do. You know. Yeah, it's just a big community too. So it's like, at least on a runner to runner level, I think there's some you know always care concern. I felt a little disconnected from how I could, you know, reach out to my friends that were out there or, you know, days later when the whole city was shut down and they were going on that whole chase thing. Again, I was in my own little world um, with my runner, making sure they had everything that they needed. And, you know, so I'm sure I looked probably a little, not me, but the nonprofit, you know, we had to kind of keep that moving while also trying to be compassionate to what was going on elsewhere. Sure. So, actually, why don't you give us the 100 words on, on what you did last summer? Well, I convinced 14 other runners to do about 140 to 200 miles of running in six to seven consecutive days. And I put those segments end-to-end across the country, which compiled into 3,100 miles over the course of five months. So, we did a 15-runner relay run across America for MS. And we were able to fundraise over $180,000 net donations for the multiple sclerosis cause. Right. So you had these folks sign up not only to to run a marathon a day for five or six days, but also to pay you for the privilege. So that's pretty good. 
Yeah. Um, well, they weren't paying me. We were paying it towards the cause. I felt, um, you know, they did all of the hard work in terms of running and fundraising, and I got to do the cool things like write $100,000 checks to the MS Society. That was the cool thing is they did all the work, and I just got to write the checks. This is a step up for you from, you know, what you did before. You 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 did this personal thing before where you ran solo across the U.S., and we talked a bunch of times when you were running across the U.S., and it seemed like a really great uh, experience for you, but then whenever people get done with that, it's always like, okay, what do you do now? Especially a young person, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're saying, okay, what do I do now? Do I go get a job? You know, do I go sit in a cubicle? That's not going to happen after you run across the United States. So you found a way to to dig deep and um, get some sponsorship and and take it to its next level, right? Yeah, um, and I wanted to, I found something you know, the experience for myself running across the country, there was something moving about that. There was something life-changing about that. And there was something really profound as an athlete to experience that type of endurance run. And I wanted to provide that to other people. And I found the relay did that. I was not disappointed at any level. And I don't feel that the runners were disappointed in any level of the experiences that they had, you know, during the event as well. I've said this before, and people are always surprised when I say it, but I am much more proud and I feel much more accomplished because of the relay than I ever did for my run across America. And that is because I think it's easy to look at yourself and say, okay, I think I'm capable of this challenge. I'm going to go achieve this goal and challenge myself to this certain, you know, task. And then to go out and do it, you know, you're the only person who's going to stop yourself if you don't succeed. So with the relay, it it wasn't my will that I was really testing. It was the will of other people, and I put them to a huge challenge. It was not only the hundreds of miles of running on consecutive days, but it was fundraising $10,000 individually, and that is a huge task in and of itself. So it really was just moving to have these people invested, excited, to have them have these experiences and to really come together as a team was just amazing. So what you did is you found the point of leverage for yourself to uh, take it to the next level, right? Yes. And that's that's a key uh, a key management science learning here is that if you can find the point of aggregation or the point of leverage, um, you can you can take your you know your twenty thousand dollars and turn it into one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So yeah, during my run, I it was. Um, I raised fifty uh, fifty six thousand, and like I had mentioned, for this it was one hundred and eighty thousand. We weren't even at max capacity, so at max capacity with the twenty one runners that we are able to host for the twenty one segments, that's two hundred and ten thousand plus, you know. And then I have a couple different programs that I want to incorporate in the nonprofit as well. So did uh, you had all these people run for you? And I saw some of them out there. They struggled. Some of these folks running. I mean, they they got to sample all the stuff that you did personally, which is running in the crappy weather and having the, uh, you know, the injuries and, and all that stuff. How did you how did you sort through all that stuff? Tell me a couple stories. Well, out west, the, the main stories were the route was always an issue. I don't feel it will be an issue anymore. But, you know, there's certain things that I will put myself through and not think twice about it. And then I really had to reflect and say, okay, I'm asking other people, like, mothers and fathers and daughters and, you know, just people who have other people that love and care about them, 
you know, to go out onto the highway and battle ca- cars or um, blisters or muscle breakdown or, you know, swelling, tendonitis, um, a whole variable different things. So we had one girl who in Utah did not, she, I mean, she's one of the fittest individuals I know. She just ran a 338 at the New York Marathon and she came out to Utah and the elevation just kicked her in the butt. And so she just, um, she was nauseous the whole time. It was hard to keep food down and it's hard to run a marathon every day if you can't keep food down. Uh, She was, had zero energy and that's always really hard. And, uh, and then on top of it, her shoes. Um, I don't know if her feet were swelling or it just had not been under that sort of test, but her toes were just killing her. So we ended up having to cut the tops of her shoes off and then duct tape a sock over her shoe because she was getting a lot of dirt and rocks in the shoe after we cut it open. Yeah, that's an old ultra runner trick, cutting the tops off your shoes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we did that for her and that was fun because she had never seen that before. So I got to introduce that to her. Um, you know, it's interesting what, what heat will do to a person too. Cause I saw some of the most kind, gentle and loving people turn into, you know, angry bears <laughs> out in the heat, you know, or if they don't have the right amount of nutrition or something's off in their body chemically, it's like the brain and the body don't work together well. So it's always interesting to see what comes up and then figure out how to help a person through those low points. Right, but I mean that's their that's their journey. That's their little slice of the hero's journey being challenged and then being successful, right? Yeah, and it's interesting that you said that too because I think in the beginning I felt like not like I stopped mothering, but I was maybe overly mothering like trying to keep them, you know, secure and and safe and in this little um crewing bubble. I I did realize that each individual had their own journey that they were going to have to go through and there was only a certain amount of things that I could do to help them with that journey, and the rest of it was up to them. Yep, and and you're doing them a favor by letting them work through that stuff on their own because that's the good that's the good stuff, right? When you go deep. Yes, yes, and I was really excited too because many of the runners said this was the hardest challenge that they had ever done. So I was like, yeah, I made like this hardcore event. You got to yeah. show up to and be someone else, and not be someone else, but be someone better. You know, you become yeah. got to get out the other side, a uh, better individual than what you went in. So you did this last year. What are you going to do this year to make it four times bigger? How are you going to leverage it? How are you going to up the ante again? So the three main programs, I think the relay is always going to be the basic. You know, I, I think we can only leverage that to so much extent. So I'm looking to fill it with the 21 runners. We need five more runners to be at full capacity, which I would be psyched about getting to. I think that's our first goal. And then there's two more programs that I would like to build with a nonprofit. One of them is a 5K running series that as the relay moves across America, um, we have like a 5K in L.A. when we start. And then as the relay goes through Vegas, we have a 5K there. And then we get to Denver and there's another 5K. So you can kind of run with the relay runner in that area in this 5K event that will also leverage more fundraising. And then I would like to start an ambassador program where anyone anywhere can run for the nonprofit, again, for fundraising for our goal to fund the cure for MS. Great. And it looked like a lot of the folks who were on your team this year 
were somehow um, impacted, had a family member or something uh, that were, you know, they were, they were tied into MS somehow. Yeah, we had, I would say it was about half and half. About half the team had a connection prior to the event. And then the other half that didn't certainly found they had a connection just by doing the event. They found that, you know, their best friend's aunt had MS. Or, you know, it's one of those things when you start talking about it, you realize just how closely connected you are to the cause. Whereas if you don't talk about it, then you just don't really know who in your life is connected to it. That, and then we had two people participate in the relay that are living with MS. So that right there is just kind of an example of, all right, we have someone living with MS that can run 200 miles in nine days successfully without injury. Then you have my mom who can't run at all, um, who can barely walk without assistance, who, you know, is fairly disabled. So that right there is just a testament to you can't always see how much the cause will affect a person or can affect a person. Yeah. So with some of these folks, did you ever have moments where you, where you, you, you know, the person showed up and you said, oh, my God, what have I gotten into? This person's never going to survive. Um, it was never like you can't ever look at a person and see what they're capable of. That's always something within them. Um, I think there were certainly points where I was concerned for their health within the event. But if anything, it was more just either tendonitis, elevation sickness nausea that really I was just like okay they got a huge battle in front of them but no yeah. way you know I really did stay close to the team I, I am still close with them but I was very close with them in terms of okay have you done the training I wrote a training program for the, each of the runners so they knew the minimum miles that I thought they needed to be running in order to complete the event successfully and then same thing for fundraising, just staying very close with them, knowing where their fundraising was, who they were talking to, how much they were doing within the parameters of the event to see whether or not they would be successful at the run and also the fundraising. So if somebody wants to sign up for this year, what you're saying is that you will personally put them in a position to be successful, both physically and financially? Yes. I will help as much as I can. There certainly is a lot of work on their end. That was one of the things I did notice, too, is there are some segments that are easier to run than others throughout the country. Obviously, that's common sense. I did know that, but now I will have a better idea on how to place people in certain areas where they will be more successful. So let's not take a newbie marathon runner and put them in the Appalachians. You know, let's put them somewhere else. I found that the runners who had done at least two to three marathons in their lifetime, either before applying or before their segment, were far more successful in terms of the comfort that they were able to complete the segment. But it was by no means a definite formula. It really is a matter of training. What you're saying is they had situations where they had run that long in practice, so they knew all about the you know what happens to you after after 20, 22 miles. Yeah, and the more you do it, I think it's really important too to put yourself in very uncomfortable situations while running, you know, go outside when it's dark and you don't want to do it. Then as you fight through those feelings and you sort through it and you figure out how you handle those situations then you have more tools in your, you know, long distance running toolbox to go to next time you have a crappy situation that you have to work through. No, you're right. Cause I see people training for marathons and they'll do it sort of in a bubble. You know, they won't go outside if it's raining or snowing or or whatever it's like you really want to embrace those times where 
know, we're talking about the weather, but it could be anything else where you have those challenges. You want to embrace those because that's the reality. The race could happen in that same condition. So Yeah, that was one of the questions that I added to the interview this year. I, I wanted the individuals, whoever I was interviewing, I asked them, you know, when was the last time you had a serious meltdown? <laughs> you know, when was the last mm-hmm. time you were so stressed beyond belief? And I was excited to ask that question because I didn't want them to think that I was trapping them to see if like, you know, hey, are you crazy? You know, tell me you're not <laughs> crazy. But I wanted them to tell me, hey, yeah, I was crazy in this moment because you can certainly get crazy out there if you're running long distances. Right. And that's that's actually a job interview question, right, in a, in a different form. So what you're asking somebody is you say, tell me um, a situation, an accomplishment that you're very proud of. Right. Mm-hmm. And you say, describe that to me. Tell me, you know, tell me how how you were successful in that. And then you turn around and you say, tell me a time when you were challenged and then what you did about it. Yep. And you can learn a lot from a lot more about people as to, you know, what they see as their their strengths and then you know, how they dealt with challenge because everybody gets challenged, right? Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. So, so you actually go through and you vet the folks who apply. Do you have, do you have a, you know, is it a, a process where there's a hundred people applying and you winnow it down to 15? We are not there yet, but we will, we will be there. We have 17 applications. I have 21 spots to fill, but with that in mind, we were short last year. We had a couple applicate applicants that I didn't think were a good fit for the event. That's not to say I'll take anyone, even if we're short. I would rather go run the miles myself than put someone either who isn't up to the running level that I would like them to be at or who, you know, isn't at the fundraising level that I would like them to be at. And it's about them convincing me that they are willing to do both. You don't have to have done it in the past, but are you willing to do it in the future is my main question. If I don't find from, you know, various different answers that they're a good fit for the event, then even if we are short our 21 runners, I will not have them participate. Hmm. That's interesting. So when you go through this vetting process, what are you guys doing as an organization to support them in fundraising? Because that's really a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, Well, the first thing is we set goals. They have to have $2,000 fundraised by the end of January and then another $2,000 by the start of the event. So they're already at $4,000 fundraised when we start. To help them get there, you know, it's really kind of how do you reach out to your network? How do you ask people to support what you're doing? And then if you don't get it from emails, letter writing, and, you know, your social media campaign, then what else do we need to do? And usually the answer is host an event. You can usually fundraise quite easily, like $3,000 by hosting a fun event where people can come and participate. It's just a matter of figuring out what event you want to host, something that you're excited about that you think other people will get excited about or that you can get them excited about. And then, you know, you can always up your donations by going to area businesses and asking for a donation for an auction item. And if you get some decent items, auctions go really well, raffles go really well. And it's just a matter of getting out there and asking people for money and asking for support, which can be very difficult. But I think with the right mentality and with the right coaching, it goes fairly well. Yep. Very good skill set to have, too. Mm -hmm. One thing I had to coach for myself, too, is it's not about me. I'm asking for this cause because I'm very passionate about it. So I'm not asking for $100 for my own bank account. I'm asking it for 
you know, my goal in fundraising X amount for the cause. And then two, if people say no to me, usually they either support another cause already or they are willing to, you know, if they're like, you know, I really don't have a spare $20 to donate, then I always kind of say, okay, well, do you have some friends and family that if I gave you an email, you could reach out to them for me and just kind of describe our relationship and ask them to donate? Because that would be very helpful as well. So it's almost kind of, you know, that ask for referrals question, but in the donation realm can be very successful as well. Yeah, that's another great sales skill, asking for the referral. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're figuring all this stuff out. You're a killer. It's fun to figure it out, and then it's also fun to help others, too, help them figure right. it out once they... I love our runner for this year. Our youngest runner was 22 years old, and she had some big walls in terms of, you know, her network is mid-20s, so getting to $10,000 in fundraising in, in that age category can be very difficult, and she is just a big thinker and a big dreamer, and she she kept going for it, kept going for it, and she was still short at the end until she actually reached out to a jewelry company and got us a really nice piece of jewelry to auction off, and I that pushed her up above the 10000 so I was really excited for her. Right, especially if you can tie into someone who has familiarity with MS or has been touched by it, you could probably get them to contribute. Yeah. You know, and if if a runner didn't reach the 10000 it's not like, you know, it's not like, okay, well, we have your credit card number. We're going to bill you for that. <laughs> it's, for me, it's more so, did you try? Did you give 110%? Did you exhaust all efforts that you could possibly imagine to achieve this goal that you said you were going to do? And if the answer is yes, then we're even, you know? Right, because it's the same thing, right? It's the same thing as saying, okay, I just ran 26 miles. I feel really accomplished. Well, if you can raise $10,000, you're going to feel really accomplished. That's It's very similar. Mm -hmm. And so, as an athlete, I think it's hard to find an athlete that would stop running the distance that they committed to. So I was kind of relate to, hey, you're not going to run three-fourths of your segment and then quit, so let's not fundraise three-fourths the amount and then quit. So as long as they gave their best effort, then I'm happy with it. All right. So are you out there running with these guys at all? I did run this year. I did a 125-mile segment into Omaha. You know, I will run as many years as it takes to have 21 runners from end to end, so we have a full full relay. When we get to the point where we have 50 applications or hundreds of applications to sort through, then I'll pull myself out of a spot in the relay to give that towards, you know, someone else who is going to want to run that and fundraise. But until that happens, I'm more than happy to go out. It's great training for the 100-miler I want to do next year. <laughs> oh, yeah? All right. You're stepping into the ultra scene. So uh, give us the links, and I'll let you get back to planning. Okay. <laughs> the website is msruntheus.com, and there is a sign-up link there. And there is also a donate link there. So those are the two areas that I would love for people to visit. Either sign up, look for the event details, and see if it's something that you want to participate in. And then also donate to the cause. 100% of public donations goes towards research to find a cure for MS and to support those with disability. All right. Great talking to you again. Thank you. I'm going to let you go, all right? All right. Thanks for the interview. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Warming up. It's important and can make your racing much more pleasant. 
I was pinning on the bib number when the gun went off this morning at the local Thanksgiving 5K that my daughter and I run each year. I just dashed over from parking my car in a space that was questionably legal because I didn't have the time. This was my warm-up. Not the quality warm-up I should really be getting for a 5K on a cold day. And sure enough, my buddy never warmed up enough to race well. I managed the first mile, but towards the middle of the race, my legs started to protest as the cold muscles refused to be abused at race pace and couldn't get enough warm blood to keep from seizing up. And I slowed way down and muddled through the rest of the race with a tight gait and a bit of a grimace, but it was miserable for the most part. Not a positive experience from a runner's point of view. Of course, it was a wonderful experience from a dad's point of view to have this tradition with his family. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the importance of the warm-up. If I really wanted to perform well in this race this morning, I should have left time to warm up. In a morning 5K on a cold and windy day, a good warm-up for me could be worth 20 to 30 seconds a mile. A good warm-up also would have made the whole thing a lot less painful and stressful. So what is a warm-up? What, what is it that you're warming up? Why do you warm up for a race or even for a hard workout? Well, first you want to warm up your muscles and tendons and all that connective tissue that drives your running. By warming up, you're literally oiling the mechanical parts of your machine. The warm-up opens up pathways that bring blood and nutrients to your muscles that, especially for a morning race, have been dormant. A nice, easy warm-up also begins the flow of natural lubricants to your joints and the fascia that sheathes your tendons. Second, you want to warm up to get your cardiovascular system prepared for the racing effort. Your heart, your lungs, the entire venal system that you're asking to transport oxygen and fuel to your muscles, it has to be given a chance to get ready for the effort. I'll give you a couple of metaphors to help you visualize. The most popular metaphor is that your body is like a car. On a cold morning, you have to give your car a chance to warm up. That cold oil has to be warmed up and moved through the engine to lubricate the pistons before the car can perform. Cold metal parts need to heat up and expand to function properly. Your heart and lungs and muscles are the same way. Racing a cold car can result in damaging the engine. Another example would be a rubber band. Have you ever tried to stretch a cold rubber band? It's stiff and non-flexible until you warm it up by stretching it some. And your tendons are the same way. Racing on cold legs drastically raises your chance of pulling or tearing something. The connective tissue is cold and it hasn't been lubricated well. The older you get, the longer it takes to warm up and the more important it becomes. When I was young, I could jump into a race and basically warm up on the fly. My muscles and systems were resilient enough to survive that first hard effort, recover in the second mile, and work at full potential in the race. I can't do that now. What does a warm-up look like? If I was smart and had all the time in the world, what kind of warm-up would I have done for this 5K or for any race? Well, first, I would have gone out and run the entire course at a zone two heart rate effort. This is an effort level that is super easy, low heart rate, 
slow, easy pace, and for me this would have been 20 to 30 minutes of easy jogging prior to the race. Second, I would have rubbed some warm-up cream into my major leg muscles after I got out of bed and before I drove over to the race. I use a product called Flexol, but any menthol or capsicum-based warm-up cream will do. What this does is it creates some chemical heat in the muscles that draws blood in and begins opening up the blood flow pathways to the muscles. And there's no special magic here. On a cold day like today, before I put my tights on, I'll take 10 minutes and preheat the major leg muscles. Squirt a little glop into your hand, massage it into your calf and hamstring, then do the same for your quad, and then do the same thing for the next leg. Put your tights on and enjoy the nasty wintergreen fumes while your muscles warm up and you drive to the race. And third, I would have stretched. I would stretch only after having done the warm-up jog. It's much better to stretch on warm muscles and connective tissue, much more effective. I would do my full stretching routine, which consists of wall leans for the hamstrings, anterior Achilles squat stretch, hurdler stretch for the hamstring and calf, and a standing quad lunge type stretch for each quad. And I hold these for at least a minute. I self-massage while I'm doing it, and I use relaxation, breathing to let them release. And finally, in the minutes before the race start, I would do some short pickups. This is a 25 to 50 foot strider. You find a patch of road, and you accelerate into race pace and form for a few seconds, and then you wind it back down. You can do two to five of these, depending on how amped up you are. It's a great way to burn a little pre-race anxiety and put your system on notice that it's go time. If I had managed to do that warm-up routine this morning, I would have executed at a much higher quality and enjoyed it much more. You probably have some questions, like, do I really have to run for 30 minutes before my race to warm up? Well, it really depends on the conditions and the type of race and what kind of shape you're in. I recommend at least 10 minutes of warm-up jog before any race. The shorter the race, the more important it is to warm up. But I will warm up for a marathon, too. I have the heart rate data to prove my warm-up assertions. On a cold day... Starting a marathon wearing my heart rate monitor, it takes at least 10 minutes for my heart rate to come down and start behaving normally for a marathon. And sometimes it will take as much as 3 miles before my heart rate stabilizes. I'm currently training for and racing a marathon a month, so adding 3.1 miles of warm-up to a 3.1 mile race is no big deal for me. You might be at a different level. But everyone should warm up for a race, even if it's only 10 minutes of brisk walking. The warm-up is also important for hard tempo or speed workouts. You shouldn't just drop into a set of 800s at the track without doing a similar warm-up to what I have described. A good warm-up will allow you to get the maximum performance and benefit from your hard tempo and speed workouts without hurting yourself. I'll tell you a story. One summer, I was training for a qualifying marathon. I was running a local Thursday afternoon race series every week and treating it as one of my tempo runs. And I'd go over and I'd run the course first and then maybe even do some 1600s. And then I'd run the race hard. And people thought I was crazy to run the 3.4 mile course before the race as a warm up. 
but it allowed me to go all out and get a great weekly workout in without hurting myself. So warm up, my friends, and I don't mean snuggling under the covers with your dog. I proved once again this morning that that is a really bad warm-up for a cold 5K. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. That's it, my friends. Episode 3-277 is done and done, and I am thankful for it. Are you? I owe you a couple of shoe reviews. First, I have been doing a bunch of longish trail runs in my new Brooks Pure Grit Trail Shoes. They don't have as much bulk as the Cascadia and are much lighter with a much softer ride. And they have, they still have the toe and the heel wrap, the caps on the outsole to give you that extra grip on techie bits and protect you from kicking something dense. And they have that stiffer outsole, and it feels like they have a bit of a rock plate in there someplace too. It's so far, I have no problems with them. They did, I did have a little bit of a issue. They've got this sideways lacing system that takes a little getting used to, and it pinches your midfoot a little bit until you get them broken in. The tread isn't super aggressive. It's not like mud aggressive, but it's enough for traction on everything I've done so far. And what I really like about them, what I bought them for, is that they allow me to run lightly with good form on the trails. It was hard to do that in the Cascadia. They were just too bulky. So I like these shoes, and I've had no problem with them. I also had someone from Solomon send me a pair of trail shoes. I haven't run in these yet because I don't want to switch to an unknown quantity in the middle of a training cycle. I have been walking around in them, and they're quite pretty, and they're comfy, and they seem to be very similar in weight and purpose to the Pure Grit, ironically enough. And when I get some more runs into these, I'll let you know what I think. I've been traveling like a madman, and will continue to do so through the Christmas holidays and the rest of the year. And it's tough to get out and get my workouts in in the morning on the road. But I do what I can manage. The week before, I flew out to L.A. for a meeting. And when I got back to Boston, I stopped by my office to get a weights workout in. And, you know, after sitting in the plane for three days and all all the other stuff, I pulled something on my back doing some barbell workouts. And that slowed me down for a couple of days. But I seem to have gotten through that. Coach has me doing a big base building cycle where it's all longish zone two runs. And this is, quite frankly, much easier to manage when I'm traveling because I can just wander around wherever I am for an hour and a half in the morning instead of having to get a structured speed workout in or something. And it's it's a lot less stressful. And I've been getting some great exploration runs in. I ran from LAX down to the beach in LA and in the morning, one morning, it was beautiful. Next up for me is the Tecumseh Trail Marathon in Indiana. And I'm just going to treat it as a long trail run and do the ultra running approach. I'll power walk the hills, run the flats, run the downs, and I'll carry a lot of nutrition. Someone told me that Dean Carnezes said this was his hardest marathon in his 50 and 50 marathons campaign. 
But that's okay. I have ultra experience. I have loads of trail running experience. So I'm actually looking forward to it. It's not going to be stressful at all. It's just going to be a fun run. And after that, my buddy Ryan has talked me into racing Waco, Texas at the end of January. That will be my last opportunity for a qualifier this year to get reseeded at Boston for 2014. And I never imagined it was going to be this hard to get my qualifying time. But, you know, looking back on it now, I can see that trying to combine a 12 and 12 aspiration with a BQ attempt has probably been counterproductive. There just isn't enough time to train between the races. You're either recovering or in your taper. If you're lucky, you get one to two weeks of quality training in. And this would have been okay if I had come into this with a high level of fitness, but I didn't. My thought was that my body would respond and I could basically race into shape. And through September and October, there was points where I ran nine races in nine weeks coming into Fort Myers. And for some reason, I'm surprised when my body shuts me down. (laughs) It's all part of the adventure, my friends. It's amazing that I can still learn things every time I put on the shoes. But you know what? You know what? Never give up. Fight it all the way down. Persistence and a positive attitude can move mountains. Next show, I have an interview with one of my longtime heroes, Bill Rogers. That's right. I had tried to get Bill on for a few years, but he was hard to nail down, so I just sort of gave up. But with some recent prodding, I went back out and contacted him again, and we had a great talk, and that's in the next show. Have a great week. We'll talk soon enough. Ciao. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff. And let me know if I can help. Ciao. I know a way to get you up on this.